Hello and welcome to The People on Kei 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Today our guest is Gabby Strong, a Los Angeles-based artist, noise musician, and designer. In my autodidact world, as a you know young feminist, pain in the ass, punk rocker, it was like uh, hearing spaces between in all of these records, like being like, okay, when they play the feedback part, like that's the best part. <laughs> that's the best part ever. Also joining us is Michael Morley, an experimental musician and visual artist from New Zealand. You're making noise and it's, uh, you know, you, and you do want to fuck it up because you want to challenge that expectation of what's the, ne- what's the next thing going to be. Is it going to be that thing that you, you've decided on collectively that's the next note or can you throw a, you know, a spanner into that mix and, and create something new and different and I think risky. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record magically repaired. You can listen to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. So Gabby Strong and Michael Morley, welcome to the people. Yeah, welcome guys. Hello. Thank you. Hey guys. So maybe we could start, Michael and Gabby, with uh, the one or the both of you kind of giving us and our listeners just like a brief a brief sort of history of noise slash definition of noise, noise music, uh, and then maybe we could lead into how you discovered it or became a part of it or made it a part of your practice. Uh, I, I think uh, noise has just always been part of sound, so it's, um, it's always sits there uh, within that, that's, that set of sounds that we hear. So it's music and then, you know, everyday noises that, that fall into that set. And then you've got the noises that you can make and um, manipulate and, uh, in, a, in, a, in I guess, in a musical sense that can include the instruments of, of things like rock music, which is what I'm kind of interested in. The, the idea that the guitar is also something that can be um, uh, made to sound not like a guitar. So the alternative to, to the conventional, I think, maybe. <laughs> Working out spaces that are new for, for uh, that kind of instrumentation. Yeah, and... Mm. Um like the ambient sounds of everyday life mm. and how they fold in and if you're listening or not listening or if you're aware, maybe mm. not aware. Um, I think about those sounds quite a bit. Uh, I also have hearing loss. So I, uh, as that's become a more prominent thing in my life, I've become more aware of what I hear and what I can't hear. And then if what I'm hearing is actually what other people are hearing <laughs> as well. Or if it's just me, my nerve in my ear, broadcasting things differently. Yeah, I mean, I, noise is a uh, problematic term. I think yeah. for music, for me, because I don't feel like it really describes what I do. Uh, although I'm not quite sure how to, what other words to use. Because they get sort of thrown around as genres to define certain categories of art or music. But it's just a way to sort of put records in a stack in a section of a store as compared mm. to uh, having a deeper understanding of what it may sound like if you haven't heard that music before or you haven't heard that art piece before. 
I think John Cage kind of makes a good definition for noise, mm. which is, you know, everything else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, it's know. everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, that, and silence, I guess, is something else that I'm, mm-hmm. I've always been interested in. So that idea of what silence is and the fact that it's, you know, it's almost impossible. Uh, so I think, yeah, noise is, that, is this one part of this great kind of universe of sound that we have. Uh, maybe um, Luigi Rizzolo's mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. manifesto mm-hmm. is a, a good starting point because that lays out a kind of framework for um, uh, an, an approach to making sound that hadn't been thought of before. So that's, what's that, 1917, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the manifesto of yeah. Out of Noises. Yeah, and I think that's, so that's a, another good starting point. But then again, it's like that's, you know, building machines to make mm-hmm. those noises. Mm-hmm. And ma- maybe we touch on that now, you know, because we're using conventional machines in a way that you can just go and buy off the, off the rack and use. Um, but I think also there are groups of people who use noise in other ways as well. So there are people who use acoustic instruments and acoustic instrumentation, and that, and that can also be noise. I guess, it, yeah, you, Gabby's right. It's like, it's a... It gets bandied about a lot, and um, uh, it's convenient for genre defining, but it's it's not so convenient to kind of discuss the spread. If you think about some of the other composers that are working in this field, you you know work from is it Bernhard Gunther his work, which is incredibly silent, mm-hmm. long form pieces, through to things like you know um, thinking of Martin, the Basque sound artist. Or um, Kafe Matthews. So Kafe Matthews produces really interesting sound environments, and she deals with kind of place mapping, uh, creating kind of a response to environment, um, and that includes noise. So I think there's a so wide brief I think of where you can look for. Right, and when you say something like mapping, what is what does that mean specifically in relation to a performance or a recording? Uh, well, for I think referring to Keith Matthews, then it's um, about using you know a GPS system and um, locking in samples that are triggered by entering the space that's defined by the GPS coordinates. And so, uh, in one project that I've seen of hers, you cycle around on a bicycle and it has a sound system attached to it. And the, as you move through uh, the countryside, the composition is made just because of the way that you're moving through the space. So if you go in a different direction, it changes the composition. Uh, if you like, veer off the track, you lose maybe uh, you know some samples. So it's a composition that's defined by how you move through space, which is, I, I think that's really interesting because you, that's, that's kind of new, maybe. I mean, I think as you move through nature, you get different sounds, but she's kind of bringing in these other pre-recorded sounds and um, allowing the the cyclist if you like the participant to then compose the work again or recompose the work using these kind of a library of samples that get triggered by the gps and it seems like both of you guys uh kind of bridge into what would be another kind of genre term but sound art or sound installation kind of work um is that i mean how would you describe that the kind of uh, the kind of work that you do gabby in that sense um well, I think of, so with my visual art, so if I have an exhibition or an installation, uh, 
sound plays a component and it, it usually almost always has a narrative that's assigned to the concept of the exhibition. So I don't necessarily have my own music or experimentation of sound happening in it. It's m more like a, a reference that congeals a narrative for me. So like something I'm interested in as a general topic and it, and it actually does deal with the history of noise is war and the legacy of war and living with war on a day-to-day -day basis in Southern California and the United States, which, which really it means like you have no idea what's going on in the world because it, it doesn't really happen here. Yeah. Uh, and that, the way it happens in Other the, places, the places yeah, in the world yeah. that yeah. we're involved in. And so um, uh, thinking about music as a way to tie in that relationship because it's broadcast, at least for me and my generation or just me in my life, hearing it on the radio and then finding out about, oh, this is a mode of thinking that's critical of contemporary culture or things in the world, mm -hmm. that being politics especially. And so I use references to other musicians' works in um, writing about my work and then in presenting the work. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, on a few occasions with like gallery installations, I've had cassette tapes available for people to listen to with like headphones and a Walkman, which is, it's just uh, from a noise generator device. So it's just like, and if you're, you know, it changes in modulation over time because of the battery dying. So the electrical impulse in the device is actually what's directing the sound, yeah. the tone. Um, and to get back to like the history of noise music and thinking of futurists and, um, mm futurist, you know, manifesto yeah. and manifesto on sound and noise that, you know, that's World War One. Yeah. When mm. the to total environment is just like blasts. Yeah. Mm. You know? Or when they were setting up those big like ears on the coast yeah. to try and hear. Yeah. Those, yeah. <laughs> like, sound, right. yeah, yeah. sound cannons and yeah. yeah. Um, and like literally blowing things up yeah. and like how impactful that was in the hearing world and how people like rec reconnaissance or, um, uh, you know, communities that were rebelling against invasion, how they would band together based on um, what they could hear, what they could see, mm -hmm. and um, relaying that kind of information in a spatial construct in mm. terms of mapping, I think is mm. like, it's, it's, I don't know, I just find it's really interesting and yeah. important, and it, and it has a legacy that I think a lot of making vast generalizations here, but a number of like, quote-unquote, noise musicians, I don't know if they're aware of like the history of this and like the violence that's attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, some are, some aren't. Yeah. Like there's a bit of a fashion correspondence with quote-unquote noise that I, I find really interesting because it seems off topic. Mm. I'm a harsh, no, harsh noise musician. I wear black. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. It's I go to this one club. Yeah, it's a stereotype around that kind of whole. Thing. <laughs> so I'll walk in. Like, I'll be like, "What yeah. kind of music do you play?" Well, I get you know, neo folk, psych, noise. Oh, harsh noise. Oh yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, Whatever. I don't, know. I don't Whatever. know how it is in I don't know how it is in the rest of the country or in other countries like New Zealand, but I know that here in Los Angeles, and I've been going to quite a few noise shows. It's the culture of the performance and the performance space is just the it's just radically different from a a, a pop show in that. <laughs> Hey, there's less people, I guess, for starters. Sometimes. And you, sometimes, you, sometimes you, not. You usually know them all, yeah. 
yeah, uh, yeah right. they, they look familiar but more importantly everyone is just i mean somebody gets up there and leans over a guitar on the floor or uh and it, you know starts and yeah. it's just silence you know and everyone is maybe respectful i guess is one word but it's like because a lot of a lot of pieces that I've heard start very quietly, yeah. like and very subtly, and so there's no like everyone stops talking and everyone just looks, you know. And it's more about a, or part of that I guess is like a is a physical interaction with the sound in mm-hmm. the space, yeah. and so it's not something that you either feel comfortable with or should like go be getting a beer while it's going on, you know. Not that you couldn't, but to it seems like a thing to just to live inside of the sound environment that's being made. Yeah. I always, I always I like get the that. urge at those kinds of shows to like, uh, you know, you're at, you're near the front of the stage at the beginning and immediately like I'm, I'm fascinated with everything that's happening usually on the floor a lot of times. And I love that. That feels like a big change to me. And like seeing music, it's like, Oh, now everything's happening like literally on the stage, like on, on the, the stage in front but of then you. immediately like in those kinds of shows i just uh, i just want to start walking around to different parts of the room yeah. to experience because yeah. mm. i feel like that's a big part of it as a yeah as a v- participant viewer like i feel like uh yeah just urged to walk around and hear how it sounds in different parts of the room yeah how do, how, how do like, our two amateur impressions of yeah. like, <laughs> strike the yeah. two of you Does I mean, that make sense? I, yeah. I like performance as a as the you know the space that becomes um, it's reverential maybe I mean people do have respect normally for the artist that's working on the stage and so that kind of attention is um, uh, I think really positive <laughs> in terms of performance because you know everyone is focused on that sound and uh, and um, and listening I think that's really important um, I <laughs> I don't know what it's like at a pop show so I have no I have it's no been a while yeah people, people generally talk right that. yeah oh uh, yeah I yeah I, they're not I, really I obviously don't go to pop shows yeah yeah I mean I've been at show I've been at noise shows where people are talking and you know, others will turn around and say, shut the fuck up, which is, I think, you know, fair enough because, uh, you know, you're interfering with uh, some other person's listening and um, why not? I mean, you've paid money maybe to come and see this stuff and you want to enjoy it, I think. I mean, that's the thing. You want to enjoy it in the way that you get some kind of meaning from it. I think that's that's important. Certainly, and it's not mm. some dude with a guitar being loud enough that you could talk under it. Like you're, so, you're if you're talking, you're missing. <laughs> yeah, you're missing yeah. something. I think sometimes you are absolutely if it's very very slight shifts and changes in volume. And I mean, I've seen some performances that are almost dead silent, and um, to the point that the audience aren't sure <laughs> what's going on. So, yeah, being quiet and respectful is is why not? Yeah. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on various podcasting apps, including Stitcher and iTunes. Um, If you're looking for us, it's best to search for The People Radio. If you're on iTunes, we'd love it if you subscribe to the show, rate the show, five stars, four stars, 12 stars, whatever. And even leave us a review if you'd like. We're also hosted by Insert Blanc Press. And you can go to the website. Uh, that's insertblancpress.net. Uh, and you just click on the people at the top of that page. So we're going to listen to an excerpt from 2015 by the Fuck Chairs, or TFC. 
which is Michael Morley and Morgan Oliver from Dunedin, New Zealand. And the name of the track is Major Blues 001.
So, Michael, I heard you're releasing an album under uh, as Gate um, called Saturday Night Fever. Is that the new album title? Or is that, uh, do yes. I have that right? Yeah, that is the correct title for the album. Um, and uh, it's coming out on vinyl uh, through MIE uh, from in London. And it's also coming out on cassette. Um, Butter Binger doing a cassette version of it as well, which will come out at the same time, which I, th- I guess is sometime in late January, maybe. Uh, early February um, soon, soon. Um, I keep forgetting about it because it's, it was done quite a long time ago after I completed um, A Republic of Sadness which I consider my first disco record <laughs> I um, I did a few other recordings and then I went back uh, to the to the piece of software that I used for A Republic which is uh, Logic and they have a bunch of uh, library sounds there so I Went back there and was kind of playing around with those sounds and uh, started making, I guess it was about six tracks, uh, all all based around uh, the idea that I'd been listening, this is kind of, kind of convoluted, but I'd been listening to um, Sticky Fingers and um, the other, Exile on Main Street. <laughs> Sorry, and that song that the sample comes from is called Sway. That's yes. yeah, I, I, we just couldn't remember that last night. Um, uh, so I, I was, uh, this is kind of really weird. I was intrigued by the horn sections in some of the songs, and I discovered in Logic there's a whole bunch of horn sections, and I thought, shit, I could maybe add horns to a bunch of disco songs that I'm making. Uh, and so I did, and um, then the lyrics all came out of um, going to Saturday Night Fever, the motion picture soundtrack, and realizing there were some titles, some words that I could use. So like, uh, more than a woman is one of the lyrics, <laughs> and um, oh, there's another one that I was I thought was quite funny. Um, but I can't remember it now. It's, you know, along the lines of get down. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Um, and so I, I let that, that album languish for quite some time. I, I kind of mixed it roughly and I gave it to Ben Goldberg to listen to at one point. And then uh, that guy Pete Swanson from Yellow Swans was visiting. And it was about that time that I was, um, I guess I was kind of had finished some mixes for it and he heard it and he really liked it and he mentioned it to Henry Tadros who runs MIE and so Henry uh, has been doing some re well he was working on some reissues with me uh, for Gate and uh, he he just said that oh Pete has told me about this disco record do you want to release that next and I thought oh that would be a good idea and so then for the cover art there was a few problems you know because the title kind of announces something really yeah. <laughs> which um is uh could could incur the wrath of someone perhaps thing and uh so the original cover artwork was um wonderfully copyright infringing uh t-shirt which had a bootleg bootleg iron-on transfer of saturday night fever and so i just took a photo of that and made that the cover art and uh <laughs> 
it'll be fine. It's, and they were afraid it wouldn't make it past the copyright. Well, yeah, we. I mean, you know, I did. I did kind of alert him to the fact that well, it's not called the original motion picture soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever, <laughs> which is what the original title of the album is, the double album. And so I'm not trying to be Tavares or the Bee Gees or whatever Commodores. Mary, someone else. I, anyway, uh, <laughs> there was a, a lot of discussion around the, the image more than the title. The title appears to be fine because, you know, I think it's fair use of the words. Um, we've I've used other similar titled records in the past. I mean, I think the Dead Sea Tusk is a good example <laughs> of, of something like that. And... Um, uh, and, I, and other bands have done things like I remember, you know, Pussy Galore's cassette of uh, Exile on Main Street, which is a great version of that. So uh, in the end, we've changed the cover a little bit for the LP that's coming out in England. But then Ben was like, I fucking like the original cover. So he's going to keep it for the cassette. So um, it comes out in, yeah, in various cover forms, but it's, it'll be consistent in general. <laughs> yeah, it looks the I saw the. The album art that just says Gate yeah. with the Saturday Night Fever yeah. logo, and yeah. it, it looks very nice. Yeah, I just cut and pasted yeah. it really badly. Like, <laughs> I've got a friend, the, the other guy in the fuck chairs is a notoriously neurotic, pedantic digital artist, and so he cleans everything up, you know, towards within an inch of its life. And uh, yeah, he looked at it and just guffawed loudly and said, I could have helped you with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the best feedback. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, I got it. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of the stones, I don't think we got too into it. <laughs> Bear with me here. Um, <laughs> talking about the history of noise, and you mentioned people that, that most people would know, like John Cale, somebody, but for you John two, Cage, maybe. Did I say John Cale? Yeah, I think John Cale, he's a good one. He's a good one, too. Right? Yeah. Anyway, he's pretty yeah. hot, as you know, noise musicians go. <laughs> I did it on purpose then. Um, sorry, Cage. Um, but could both of you maybe talk about how you personally came to be involved in or to be practicing this sort of music? Well, for mm-hmm. me, I think it was just like a natural trajectory. I don't know how else to put it together. Um, we we were talking about this at my house, like, you know, when, so when did you start listening to punk rock? And I was like, mm, 13, 14, 15, like when I moved to Southern California it was it was everywhere it was like really present and um and that was an eye opener and i think it was like through you know living in the south bay and black flag records and seeing raymond pettibon's artwork on these you know like very obscene record covers that i would get in a lot of trouble for having from my parents um <laughs> was like oh it's a fanzine oh shit and it was like 50 cents 2 dollars something like that got those and was like, these are crazy. And then, oh, there's a genre of visual art that goes with this as well. And then, you know, I went to UCLA as an undergrad and by then um, was well into collecting records on my whatever, like lawn mowing, teenage <laughs> job, minimum wage, salary could afford. And um, I'd be that person going to the record store and reading the... Um, you know, finding the one the one person's handwriting where you're like, oh, they're, they're I'm gonna get this record because they're giving me a hidden message that this is the one, and I know I don't know who this person is, but I recognize their handwriting. They're leaving these like labels on stuff to get, you know. Um, most of the time, it would be something I was interested in, and um, it would just lead to like another 
kind of musician or another kind of record to listen to. And a lot of this music, um, it was like different genres, different types of music from different decades and sort of cobbling it all together in my autodidact world as a, you know, young feminist pain in the ass punk rocker. It was like, uh, hearing spaces between. So, you know, like Ashra Temple and Hmm. Black Flag and then Free Kitten and Sonic Youth and, um, all the Raymond Pettibon, Sir Drone videos. And (laughs) in all of these records, like being like, okay, when they play the feedback part, like that's the best part. (laughs) That's the best part ever. Um, and then really starting to like search it out and understand it more and really pay more attention to it. Um, when I started playing music, I had a friend from high school. <laughs> I'm sure he regrets this now. Was like, oh, I have a bass. I'm not really using it. You should play it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I still have it. <laughs> Thank you, Mike Rao. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'll still glad to give you some money. You know, just let me know. Um, um, and not really not taking music lessons. I took music lessons in like fourth grade. I took piano. My family didn't have a piano. So that only lasted like a few months before the, the teacher was like, okay, so you can't practice. So I don't know if we should really continue. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of my approach to making music is like, I don't really practice. I assemble a bunch of effects together. Um, I think about how they sound. Is this what I want to do for this performance? Do I want to incorporate um, visual work with this? Do I want to collaborate with other artists, visual artists, uh, other musicians? Um, Like a collaborative space, uh, because I think experimental music really allows for that. Um, So the long and short of it is just like, since I was a late teen, like, just seeing where it would go and then finally sort of realizing like oh this is this is my art practice this is what I do this sounds pretty good like I like this people like this they're not leaving when I'm playing I've had those shows and there's other people that are doing there's other people that are doing it and they like doing it too or they're like that video John Pearson made this video for you it was great oh my god what the music was fantastic and I was like wasn't that uncanny I had no idea what was going on in the video it was like really great um anyway yeah so it's um yeah, that's just where for me it's um, it's experimentation. It's like it's not fixed, and that's the part that I, for me, is really important. That it's it's not songs. They're not um, they don't repeat themselves. There might be structures that I repeat or stretch out, but that the out outcome of that is usually not the same. Like they're similar, um, but they're they're not set and they're not songs. And it's, I really find like playing songs incredibly boring where it's like you rehearse and you rehearse and you rehearse and you play the same thing over and over again. And then there's an expectation of whether you've done a good job or a bad job and how that's going to be perceived. It, I find that incredibly like trite. It's just really not, um, mm. it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel good. And it doesn't make me feel like I'm giving something exciting to the listener in any way. Um, so some some like themes or or little things might repeat, but it's if you're playing some you know, so you're really not going up on stage with 
I don't. A there's no set list. list. There's not like a little piece of paper with scroll. <laughs> well, I have. I'll have a diagram of like. Okay, I, ha- I have to remember. I plug in my pedals in this order. Right. Or yeah. it won't. It might not sound like how I expect it to in the dark when I'm rolling. You know, on the floor. Like, what's, yeah. a, what's where's that button? Shit. Um. <laughs> yeah. I hope they don't see me while I so, just realized my guitar's been unplugged for ten minutes. I plugged that back in. Oh, li- listen to that. Sounds wow. great. Everyone was like, that was amazing. Oh, sh- well, that's because you didn't see that. My guitar was unplugged. Um, so a set list is more like kind of a, a diagram it's a of diagram. pedals. It's yeah. a diagram of pedals and yeah. like maybe uh, like some words or ideas to stay focused. So yeah. Like play. a loose outline of a structure, of, yeah, right? It's it's very... Yeah, it's a. I was gonna say it's very structurally organized, <laughs> but it's really not that. They're just friendly reminders because. Um, friendly. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, stage fright isn't really the word. It's more like um, this absence comes to my mind. <laughs> like everything is 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 open, and I've forgotten everything that's supposed to happen. Often when I go up to perform, and then and always in that moment, I'm like, "What am I doing? Like, why am I doing this?" this what and then uh, you know but then i'll start something and then it's like oh this is great yeah that openness seems to be the advantage of this of this form and i know i'm oh i think so pulling everything together yeah no No, but it's true yeah Yeah, totally right the openness i think is that that's like the big factor for me yeah i i never have a set list and as in the dead sea we've We've never, I, would, I couldn't say we've never had set lists because at the very beginning, I think we used to write a set list because we, we actually had songs that we didn't rehearse necessarily, but songs that had been kind of, we'd recorded. And so we could, at that point, uh, not not exactly recreate them, but we could do a version of things. And so we would always be like, oh, Max Harris and polio and <laughs> things like that were things that we could, we could recreate at, at, in a, but, but extended out over like an hour. So, um, but that was it. And then we gave up writing set lists because we gave up on the idea of ever, ever recreating a song again uh, because we didn't want to. But certainly I st- started out, I mean, with the idea of tape collage. So that was the first type of noise making that I was doing. And then um, in Rick Small Speakers, we, we didn't, we just improvised. We may have had some songs, but. Uh, they they were things for recordings. When we were playing, we were just making shit up and not really caring. And then that kind of translated through the Dead Sea as well. And that was a that was a, an attempt to, um, you know, in Dunedin at, at the time in the eighties, it was just a wash with fucking pop bands doing pop music. I maybe shouldn't say that, but it was um, really dull. And um, uh, even good friends of mine were quite successful in, you know, having a career in, in rock music, but and, and touring um, the US and Europe and that stuff that I didn't do at that point. Um, but <laughs> I also didn't want to play that type of music. I'd played that type of music once before in a band, and I kind of got uh, like Gabby. I got really annoyed by the countless rehearsals and. You know, you've got to get this thing right, otherwise the other people are going to get fucked off with you and kind of look at you in a funny way. And all you want to do is have fun because yeah. you're making noise and it's, uh, you know, you, and you do want to fuck it up because you want to challenge that expectation of what's the, ne- what's the next thing going to be. Is it going to be that thing that you've, you've decided on collectively that's the next note or can you throw a, you know, a spanner into that mix and, and create something new and different and I think risky. I think that was the thing that I liked about 
uh, when we started playing was that kind of risk that is generated by the fact that you don't know what you're doing. Um, you're kind of you're kind of thinking, oh well, this sounds all right, and we like it. You know, the three of us like it. The fact that other people might like it or might not like it didn't really occur to us because we didn't even conceive of an audience. That was the other <laughs> the other thing that we were doing was like not really giving shit about uh, playing out. So I think I think after we'd I mean you know in our first rehearsal play together we recorded that and we were kind of thinking oh that's pretty amazing like we've got an hour's worth of material that uh kind of gives us an idea of um, how fucked up we are and um we i think we played probably within a couple of months of that and people hated us and then we (laughs) released the cassette and people hated that and so it just became this kind of um uh, antagonistic existence where Everyone else was playing rock music, and we were just these outsiders who were just fucking around, and we weren't to be taken seriously. And that's still, I think, that's still how we're perceived in New Zealand. A lot of people don't know who we are in the main. Or actually, most of the people don't know who we are in the mainstream uh, because mainstream New Zealand music is uh, it's got a it's got its own genre, um, Kiwi music, and it's really lame, fucked in the head, banal <laughs> shit. Really, <laughs> it sounds like anything else that you might here around the world, except it's got a New Zealand Pacific accent. Hey, you're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember that you can find us uh, on iTunes by going to the iTunes store and searching for The People Radio. And once you find us there, uh, it would be great if you would take the time to subscribe to the podcast or leave us a rating or leave us a review. Or all the above. And we're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Uh, go to our website, insertblancpress.net, and there's a button for the people at the top of the page. It'll take you to a page where you can find um, all of our archives. Um, there's three years' worth of shows we've done uh, there, and, um, and you can find out more about the show in general. And we're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash insertblanc. That SoundCloud page also features a bunch of other recordings and readings and stuff from Insert Blanc Press that uh, we're pretty sure that you'll enjoy. So now let's get back to our conversation with Michael Morley and Gabby Strong. So we've talked a little bit, like you guys have brought up uh, punk a couple times, and we've kind of been skirting around this this idea of antagonism in the music and in the performance and its relationship the relationship between the performer and the audience, whether it's like a live audience or someone listening to a recording, that seems to be a reoccurring thing. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. Like, um, like when I was a teen and would go to shows and this is like late eighties, um, sort of like after punk, after punk rock, uh, shows are really violent and it, it was, I mean, it would be any, anything alternative. There would be a pit, and it would be pushing and shoving, sexual harassment, um, inappropriate touching, uh, and it, just, it was just expected at any show. And um, there was a place in Long Beach called Fender's Ballroom that's notorious for its violence, um, which was also amusing. You, you know, you're a teen rebelling for a reason. Um, uh, and you just go to shows there and like there would be fights, there would be fights in the street. Um, and so that had a really long trajectory 
that I experienced going to um, more mainstream alternative music in the 90s uh, when quote-unquote grunge broke, you know, and punk broke, and um, what was seen on MTV or, you know, <laughs> displayed uh, on, in visual media was understood. It was like, oh, that's the behavior you're supposed to have. So, you know, I'm a frat dude, now I'm going to do that too. And um, so it just had this pervasive cultural quality that went on far too long that wasn't it didn't have anything to do with the kind of music that was being played or the notion or the politics or anything of the music because it wasn't political anymore um but that being said like uh one of the groups i played with um it was myself and my friend minji pak and we called ourselves the trucker fuckers just because it was totally inappropriate rolls off the tongue it just rolls off the tongue and everyone's like what what is that um but we 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 had this con- conceptual idea that we were just gonna switch off after every song that we played live. So how can we drag out this set into like this annoying, super annoying, like thirty minutes of just every other song and like retuning and moving the drums around? Um, we didn't we didn't play that long, but we had a nice nice time together. I think we put out a tape. Um, but antagonizing the audience in a way is not to provoke them into committing violence against us, but more about thinking about antagonism, like how we were acting in regards to making music and what did that mean? Right. And um, maybe about like what the performer or... What's the owe, relationship? Owes, owes yeah. the audience, what the audience owes the performer. Some of that. Like, are yeah. you here to be entertained or are you here to experience something or where is the line, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was, that was bass and drums and... Um, as loud as we possibly could be and com- completely never practiced. And I mean, yeah, I was just like, what kind of garbage could we present yeah. at the show <laughs> where people wouldn't leave or right. maybe they would leave, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I've certainly been to a couple shows, a uh, friend of the show, Greg Curtis and Diego yeah. and their women versus children, their band that played at some oh, yeah. openings and it's, you can just walk, you know, like when you see the aerial shots of like the sharks, like swimming through. It's like that. Just a hundred people just moving around the corner, like out of the rays of the yes. sound. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I mean, Michael and you, I mean, what's your relationship with that sort of thing? Uh, the antagonism was directed at certainly the, um, the pervading views around music at the time. So the kind of jangly pop music that um, was being produced in the city of Dunedin where I live um, and how that was that was um, I don't know it was very popular and we didn't want to play that kind of stuff we didn't see the point in that so it was also kind of you know uh, bringing up the idea that um, you can make any type of sound and you can make it your own and uh, why can't we make feedback um, shitty guitars a drummer who goes in and out of um, time of <laughs> his own volition uh, and you know vocals that may, maybe you can hear maybe you can't can't hear but uh, but maybe you pick up something about uh, the narrative that's being expressed in the, in the lyric so most of the lyrics certainly earlier on are all about certainly violence and international violence uh, in terms of you know the military industrial complex and how its uh, its tendrils find its way throughout the world in various ways, um, even, and even in New Zealand, the the, the stupid politics of the conservative right, 
uh, which uh, we were all against. And certainly we, as we were growing up, the, the politics in the country was really conservative. And we had been kind of like uh, hit really hard by a, a, um, a, a conservative government in the late 80s that meant that uh, we just lost everything really effectively. And then that was kind of compounded by a socialist government that carried on the policies. So and then you gave up on politics because it, it became, it was just all the same kind of crap. So we were, you know, we were antagonistic about that, the culture itself, the the white predominant culture of New Zealand, the, the kind of post-colonial construction that we were kind of um, working against. Certainly we were engaged politically in various activities as well about uh, recognizing and honoring the Treaty of Waitangi, which is a, a document signed between uh, the various tribes of New Zealand, of Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the English uh, in 1840, and that the fact that that treaty had never been ratified and it never it had never really been um, honored, and that the English had taken land illegally from Māori. So we were commenting about that as well in our in some of the lyrics and certainly some of the graphics that we were using. Uh, and then, but also actively engaged in like workshopping ideas around the treaty, uh, not as a band, but in, as individuals. Um, and so there was a general antagonism against the this kind of um, sick culture that we saw around us. And I still think it's there in New Zealand. It's still a pretty sick culture. It's, it hasn't really come a long way in, in you know thirty or forty years. Although uh, you know we see some developments occurring uh, that are positive. I think yeah. Do y'all think this is uh, related? Do y'all think that the ability of musicians to manifest anti-authoritarian sentiment through their music? Do you think that that's kind of on the wane, or I feel like I don't see quite as much of it anymore? Where do you think that's at? I think part of it. I was just thinking of that like now, and um, I mean I. We'll see what happens in the next four years, you know, right. here yeah. in the U.S. Sure. But um, it feels like it's much more disassociative. Mm-hmm. So, like, and I, I think that has a lot to do with digital culture. So, like, uh, I'm probably not going to express this very articulately, but, um, like, so, you know, punk music and post-punk music coming out of these incredibly conservative times um, here, New Zealand, England, like, the Western world, and then... The legacy of that up until now uh, were these back and forths into some, I wouldn't say liberalism, just sort of uh, moderate political states um, that, especially thinking about neo-folk, psych music, experimental music, noise music, that these disassociative subjective experiences that are very undefined come to represent like states of being that the performer may have, the audience may have, or sharing these things back and forth um, in a performance setting or just listening to music while you're driving around or going to the grocery store or whatever. Um, especially this idea of like the non-narrative, the non-political um, voice that's didactic with the, the sign that's making a statement isn't present in the music itself, but its aesthetic is one that's incredibly jarring if you're not attuned to it or you haven't been listening to it because it doesn't follow necessarily any kind of specific order. Um, and that in itself, I think, is is quite 
a very much a political statement, but it doesn't get discussed in that way, and and not in music uh, culture, music blogs. There's not a lot of political mm -hmm. discourse about the 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 way in which musicians are playing. There's either an attempt, to, in my experience, where it gets aligned with some sort of modern composition or avant-garde music or the history of avant-garde music as compared to, well, let's compare this to the state of politics today and what's happening in contemporary culture. Is this a reaction to that? Um, or is this a, a provocation of um, <laughs> radicalization <laughs> in whatever state you're in? You know, this notion of becoming radicalized. How do you do that today? And I use that, I'm, I'm making fun of that term, but um, I think it's incredibly important to be a subversive agent, whether you're in, um, you're in a place that's not working for you and you want to seek change. How do you do that in ways that actually have impact without killing people? Yeah. Right, that's without crucial. killing that's people. A crucial component. Yeah. <laughs> and without controlling others in a totalitarian state. Right, without generating a, a new form of oppression. Oh, yeah, yeah. To totally. Yeah. It's about expressing ideas and opening up creative concepts to people to think about how they might might live better lives. Well, and re and like rebuilding a state of being, which is what I feel like, yeah. since I'm pretty new and don't know that much about noise, but have been going to some shows, like when I saw the two of you perform at the Complex in Glendale, California. The Complex, yeah. Uh, that... that sort of reiterated this idea for me when I go to noise shows, whether they be harsh or otherwise. Soft. Like, or soft. Yeah. That's soft, the other yeah. version. Yeah. Soft noise. Um, <laughs> that it, it feels like the performer is like, is is doing, like you say, like building, sort of building a state of being or su building something, building a suggestion of a yeah, state hint, of being. Hinting it. Yeah. 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 And yeah. kind of putting you, if you want to participate, kind of putting you in a position to understand, yeah, what the lack of rhythm and the lack of, sweet vocals or whatever like yeah that you've come to expect well i think i think in that example playing playing with romley and michael as gate going on tour with romley on the west coast here like they're they're a very good example of this um um you know their name comes from the english colony of romley and what have you in the middle east and that um so so i <laughs> it's very complex and kind of um hard to unpack but as I understand it, like taking taking this name from a colony, that's one that's putting England, you know, this imperialist power in the source of the Middle East, where for what seems like at least the past 70 years and perhaps the next 70 years, internal conflict will, internal, international <laughs> conflict will, I'm having a crisis, international <laughs> conflict will be um, continuing because mm. of this notion of colonialism and imperialism and the conflict of a clash of uh, cultural understanding. Um, but to take that as a reference, kind of a obscure political reference and then bringing it back into the genre of music that they're playing. Um, and especially for Gary, for Kleisfar, I think too, and how like the videos that he was using of this like kind of bombed out mm. dystopian right. mm. nation state. Uh, vocalizing over that and playing electronics to generate even more dissonance um, and degeneration as a kind of way of being because that's that's what we live in right <laughs> that's you, where we're living i see you, know? you nodding michael does that all track yeah, it does indeed <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah we we uh we inhabit this crazy blasted environment yeah. i think yeah. you know everywhere and and I think it's it's worse in other places. Obviously, I think it's worse than it's w worse in the Middle East now than it ever has been. Yeah, 
and it's only because of colonial thinking yes that's been it's persisted for a hundred years or more now so yeah I mean how do you how do you counter that <clears throat> and I guess you know you create an alternative reality to that so in, in some way that that can I don't know <laughs> not offer I don't think it offers hope <laughs> but it just allows you to think about things in a different way like if you're thinking about you know bombing a country like why the fuck would you do that mm-hmm. that seems outrageous right <laughs> you know it really does yes. well you're di- you're 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 disrupting an established order right with the music and, and yeah. that's yeah. ultimately hopefully reflective of yeah one's desire to disrupt the order of colonialism or imperialism yeah. or both yeah yeah i think certainly living within a uh, like in a post colonial society like i do uh, the one thing you're always conscious of is the you know, uh, there's been so much damage <laughs> that's occurred uh, since you know since settlement from by Europeans, and that, and you when you look around, it's like it's just everywhere. It's like it's in Australia, it's in New Zealand, it's throughout some parts of the Pacific as well. Because like when you think about the Pacific, it's like there are some countries there that run themselves; they don't have any connection to anybody else uh, in terms of like a colonial oversight. Uh, anymore and you know New, New Zealand doesn't fit into that category and that's really strange for me when I think about it because uh, there are really great leaders Maori leaders indigenous leaders in New Zealand who should be running the show and that would that would change the country really radically and I guess that's the threat the, to yeah. the to the the, the colonial uh, way of thinking is that you know they should be in control but that's that's yeah that's not really what should be going on I don't think and I think that's the same that you know when you see look when you look at what's happening in the Middle East that kind of desire of corporation corporations and countries nation states to control you know the flow of energy that's yeah. that's the same thing really yeah control and control and order and discipline and yes. punishment and that kind of stuff yeah. Well, Michael and Gabby, thank you for joining us on The People. Thank you. Thanks, Thank guys. you. You've been listening to The People on K-Chone, 1630 AM. Our theme music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. And remember that you can find us on iTunes by searching the iTunes store for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe to the podcast or leave us a rating or leave us a review or do all three. And you can find out more about the people, and you can find our archives, our three years of uh, shows we've recorded. They're all up at insertblancpress.net. If you go there and click on the people at the top of the page, they are, of course, on iTunes, and they're on Stitcher and SoundCloud, or, you know, you can also go to insertblancpress.net. We're going to go out with an excerpt from a live performance of a piece called Peak Experiences by our guest Gabby Strong. Uh, It was recorded at Shangri-La Joshua Tree in California uh, in September of 2015. The recording was released on the cassette Mineralism in January of 2016 as a limited edition of 100 and was mastered by Mark Wheaton at Catasonic Studios.